The Call Confessions is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. Please, please visit occultconfessions.com to keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Go ahead and click on Donate. We also want to note that it's commercial-free. And Aztec Gold is always appreciated as well. <laughs> or, or European Gold. Yeah, or European any, Gold. Any kind of gold. Any kind of gold is fine. The United States has a day to honor Christopher Columbus, the second Monday, that is, in October. The celebration of Columbus Day had started among Italian-Americans in San Francisco and became a national holiday in 1937. Recently, indigenous people and their allies have requested changing the celebration of Columbus Day to the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day. While this is in part an effort to recognize the place of native people in America's history and culture, it is also a reaction against Columbus, who, detractors say, does not deserve his own holiday. For them, Columbus is a villain. Certainly, Columbus played a central role in the Christianization of the Americas, specifically the Caribbean. His example inspired countless European explorers to cross the Atlantic and initiate ambitious programs of colonization which ultimately decimated native populations. But is the villainization of Columbus based on the fact that he set an example for explorers to follow, or is it based on crimes he committed against the Caribbean's indigenous people? I will by the way, be saying both Caribbean and Caribbean today. That's just how I roll. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant, and I am joined by our captain of the table, James Caplangis. Oh, hello, howdy, and good evening, or morning. Well, whatever time of day you're listening to this. Good day. There's no bad time to confess a cult style. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How, how are things, James? Things are great. I'm down with the Caribbean or the Caribbean. Either or either <laughs> is fine with me. <laughs> cool. For a vacation or for a history lesson? Any of the above? It's a little hot for me. Oh, is it really? I have overactive sweat glands. <laughs> it's kind of like a human swamp monster. but You're more of a, a, a Alaska vacation kind yeah, of Yeah, but it does look nice. <laughs> So for, for a photo essay, then, yeah. you're down. From okay. afar. From afar. <laughs> we, the members of the, of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, James, let's open up that uh, order of confessors. Plug, plug, plug. No, we're not doing that anymore? Well, we do various things, but I'll take that sound. Uh, well, let me do another. Go ahead. Plug, plug, plug. Yeah, you can say various words, I guess, is what oh, I'm trying to say. Um, no words yeah. at all. Here we go. Here we go. We're coming. We're we coming want... to the, the confessors. We, we want to thank <laughs> Effigy and the Flying Ball. Also, Brujo D, Weronica R, Cameron H., Ella and Alex for your for joining our our patron crew. We very very we very much appreciate that. Uh, and the patron crew is is always uh, I won't say growing. It is always maintaining <laughs> because of folks joining, and naturally folks have financial situations and they've got to leave or I don't know pay for gas or something, uh, and that's fine. We understand that. Uh, so it's good. We got to keep that that uh, that patron crew rolling and. Uh, and I, I want to remind you, those patrons are responsible for uh, for keeping us going. 
We want to thank a, a couple of uh, reviewers. Uh, Mr. S, also known as Eric, uh, wrote us a nice review in Australia, where we are more controversial, I think, than we are in other countries, for reasons that completely escape me. Uh, but Mr. S is sticking up for us <laughs> there in Australia. Also, Cameron, uh, Cameron Hip, favorite podcast by far. I learn and laugh with the with the this quirky crew. Uh, so that's on on Podchaser. So uh, again, if you'd like to drop us a review on Podchaser, uh, I'm also fascinated to see when our number of Spotify reviews. You can you you can't write a review on Spotify. You can just drop those stars and and please do that. Uh, I I am I am keeping track of when our Spotify uh, star ratings surpass our iTunes ratings, which in the U.S. I think it's going to happen fairly soon. Um, so go ahead, Spotify listeners, show us that you care. <laughs> our love will be waiting for you. If you do, James, close us up. We got you. <laughs> we got that's you. very. Is that? I don't know if that's nice or threatening. No, no, like, like yeah, we got you. Oh, we got. So it's okay. It's nice. Yeah, he's like a nice city folk guy. City folk guy yeah, from from any city, from Sydney. Really. Yeah, from Sydney's the city <laughs> or Melbourne <laughs> or Perth <laughs> or, or Perth. James is such a geography guy. <laughs> All right, are we, are we ready to do this? Uh, I'm ready. Are you ready, Rob? I am. Okay. We're going to flip the script today. We're not going to go Columbus first. We're going to uh, start with the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean. And uh, and so I would like to introduce to you part one, the Tainos. The Tainos. Before I get to Columbus, I want to spend time with the people who arrived in the Caribbean long before he did. That is to say... The Tainos. The name Taino means the noble people, or it could possibly mean the good people who aren't cannibals, depending on how you want to translate it. Early colonizers observed how the Taino regarded a neighboring group called the Carib as rivals and cannibals who periodically raided their villages and stole their women and concubines. So those were the rival groups in the Caribbean. Um, you had the Caribs, which I assume is yeah, Caribbean, what it's named yeah. for, yeah. And uh, then the Taino. And the Taino were supposed to be the, the good ones. And they were like on boats and stuff. Yes. Going between the islands. Everybody had boats. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, today, the word Taino refers to a broad group of people who lived in the Caribbean islands of Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, uh, Jamaica, Eastern Cuba, and the Bahamas between the years of 250 BCE and 1500 CE, when the Spanish arrived with Christopher Columbus. I'm estimating there because it's, you know, 1492. <laughs> this group is not homogenous and is comprised of diverse populations that shared some common traits. In terms of material culture, the various Taino groups produced similar symbols and ritual artifacts. They also shared a language, some parallel myths, and religious rites like the hallucinogen-based uh, hallucinogen Cahoba and the Arieto. So different groups, but common traits. So that's what we, that's Taino. That's what we mean by Taino. There may have been as many as a million Taino living in the Caribbean when Columbus arrived. Their ancestors, the Arawakan-speaking Ronkinian Soladoid people, hmm, had originally migrated from South America, specifically the region around the Orinoco River through 250 BCE. Everybody's an immigrant at some point. Yeah, everybody's from somewhere. Except for, you know, that 
Lucy, that artifact person who was the, born in the first yeah, human. The first human. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else moved around. Yeah. Except for Lucy. Uh, so there were people already there when the Ronkinian Saldoidites. Saldoidites. Do you know how to pronounce this? Jake? Saldoidites. Saldoidites. When they arrived, uh, and they mostly adopted the culture and practices of the migrants, blending with them to form what were called the Osteonoid people. So that's the blend of the people that were there before 250, and then these people. What does Ost mean? East. Oh, you you got like me there. Austria, Australia, like that. That. that oh, yeah, oh, that makes yeah, sense. East. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't quote us on that. <laughs> we're just playing. James likes to play with words. Yeah, like, I'm just looking for hints. Around 1100 or 1200, the Osteonoid were well dispersed around the Caribbean, and their farming practices and culture had taken the distinctive form that archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians have since come to identify as Taino. These Tainos may have been the largest and most recognizable group in the Caribbean when the colonizers arrived, but they were not the only group, with other Osteonoid descendants and still older Saladoid-style groups still existing on the island. So groups that didn't quite blend up. There were roughly five coalitions of towns in Hispaniola when the Spaniards came to town. These were ruled by chachiques, or chiefs, uh, who lived in a great plaza at the center of town containing a courtyard where rituals were performed and they played ball. What kind of ball? Mm, various ball games. I'll tell you about that ball game. Okay. The, Tachik, the Chachiks practiced uh, polygamy, taking as many as 30 wives. There could be female Chachiks as well, although males were more common. Men and women were apparently equal in Taino culture. Women were in charge of agriculture and men fishing. So there was a division of labor, but nobody had the power position. Right. I see. Everybody got to be on top at some point. Everybody was in charge of food. Yeah, yeah, different <laughs> foods, yeah. Right. Yeah, pescatarian diet. Mm. So both could rule as leaders. Men and women serve as healers, and men and women participated in ritual worship together of both male and female deities. I love everything about this. Chastity was not a value among the Taino whatsoever for men or women. Chachiks sometimes warred between each other over territorial or political matters, but they did not have a common enemy until the arrival of the Spaniards, except for their trouble with the Carib people. So, Generally, what we're describing here is this, like, sexual paradise. Yeah. <laughs> On the island of Hispaniola. <laughs> there is no gender disparity. Uh, there, there, there's very few uh, uh, constraints on, on sexual practice. Uh, and there's very little war. They are making, literally making love, not war, the Taino. Except when the Caribs come around. Yeah, but it seems like they're just kind of coming around and invading the Caribs, or, yeah, yeah. They're coming and messing with them. Let's just talk a little bit about these Caribs. So, okay. the surgeon on Columbus's second voyage was a man named Diego Alvarez Chanca, uh, and and he wrote about his journey with Columbus. So he's an important historical source for our understanding of Columbus, and and this is one of our first European sources about the Taíno people and the Carib people. So while we have to take what he says with a grain of salt, historically we need to try to make to take something away from it. 
Uh, so he detailed the brutal treatment that the Caribs gave to the Tainos. These women also say that the Caribbees use them with such cruelty as would scarcely be believed, and that they eat the children which they bear them and only bring up those which they have by their native wives. Such of their male enemies as they can take alive, they bring to their houses to slaughter them, and those who are killed they devour at once. When they take any boys prisoner, they cut off their member and make use of them as servants until they grow up to manhood, and then kill and eat them. No. No. <laughs> no. No. Don't no. do that, says James. I don't want them to eat them. Don't eat the men. Don't eat the children. Eat the fish and e the food. Right. You have all that fish <laughs> and all that agriculture. Reports of the Caribs or Caribbees. I'm going to make you feel a little better about this. Okay. Reports of the Caribs or Caribbees with the hallmark slaughter of the innocents common to falsified accounts of ritual evil, can't help but make me wonder the degree to which they were imagined somewhere between the Tainos and the Europeans. The bones that colonizers found in the Caribs' huts and believed to belong to their victims actually came from their ancestors. They like to keep their ancestors' bones in the house. Sort of like your aunt keeps her husband's ashes on the mantelpiece. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Similar idea. Similar idea. Uh, in the case of the Caribs, their supposed cannibalism became a justification for their enslavement as subhuman, although, strangely, no such justification was required for the Tainos, about whom no such rumors were created. Probably their provocation to acts of violent retribution served a similar purpose. Uh, so, in other words, getting the Tainos to act violently became an excuse. With the Caribs, they seem to be a little bit more aggressive as a rule. So we, maybe the Tainos invented these stories. Maybe the, the whites helped to develop these stories. But, you know, having the children and then eating the children, that's like the most evil thing yeah. you can think of, yes. right? Inseminating a woman and then eating the, your own offspring. It's wild. It's just a wild tale. Um, Kathy O'Brien, actually, in, in her book, you know, those of you who are fans of my conspiracy episodes says something like this to, to paint this picture of an evil conspiracy yes. of killers. So it's just a, a hallmark of of the genre. So that always makes me think, really? Yeah, it's just like, okay, we want you to hate these people. What yeah. could they do so what we can dehumanize them? Yeah, you can yeah. Eat, eat babies or do something else to kids or whatever. I mean, the one thing I can't say is whether it's the Tainos who are developing these stories or the colonizers, but this is what's passed on to us yes. from Chanka. So after his first voyage, Columbus reported that the Tainos all went naked, men and women alike, with some women wearing a covering over a single place. I assume their navel. Yeah, belly buttons. <laughs> to adorn their nakedness, they wore ear and lip plugs, as well as nose ornaments. So again, naked, but decorated. They also wore finely carved beads, amulets, and pendants. Just sexual paradise, this place. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the point of what's happening with Columbus, too. I I've probably said this on previous episodes. 
the Europeans were relatively unfamiliar with nakedness, period. They didn't see naked people. Oh, they were doing like the 17-layer thing at this time. They wore a lot yeah. of layers. Yeah, We're going to get to that in a second because the, the Taino had some pretty funny things to say about this. But on top of that, there are some scholars who believe that Europeans never took their clothes off in front of each other either. They had sex while clothed. They hardly ever bathed. So nakedness would have been extremely foreign to them and would have really stood out. They all, as I have said, go naked as they were born, except the women of this island who have their private parts covered, some with a covering of cotton which they bind around their hips, while others use grass and leaves of trees. When they wish to adorn themselves, both men and women paint themselves, some black, others white, and various colors. They shave some parts of their heads, and in others wear long tufts of matted hair. For their part, the Tainos were baffled by the Europeans' commitment to wearing leather and wool in the tropical heat. Here we go, James. <laughs> <laughs> and when conflict broke out between the Taino and the Europeans, the Tainos said the Europeans could never sneak up on them because they could always smell them coming. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're wearing wool... And it's 100 degrees out. Imagine it gets a little, uh, a little sweaty. You bathe once a year. The Spaniards regarded the Tainos as particularly attractive, as I was mentioning. Uh, Bartolomé de las Casas remarked that they would be praised in Europe for their good and eminent beauty, especially the women. And I think this was fairly unique in terms of the racialized relationship between the colonizers and the the Taino. So this was going to set the stage for the Spanish and the sexual conquest of, I mean, from the very first days of the Spanish engagement with native people, there were the seeds of what would become the sexual conquest of the Americas. It didn't really, I mean, it didn't really happen in the United States because the British were largely doing the colonizing and the British famously liked to stay separate from indigenous people and did not want to have sex with them. But the Spaniards were all about it. So when we look at, you know, your modern Mexican or Puerto Rican person, they have the genetic blend of their indigenous ancestors and the Spanish uh, colonizer um, because of this. The Spanish were not only open to it, but enjoyed this. About which more to be said. What is that what they call Latin America? Latin America. I always got confused because Latin is like from Europe. Right? Yeah, it's confusing. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, it's Latin speaking. I don't actually Latin know Americans. why we call it Latin America. Hmm. Yeah, that's a question for the view, for yeah, the listeners. For yeah, listeners. Yeah, let us know. I've never, I've never thought about. That. I mean, I have. Like, it's crossed my mind. Oh, why do we call it that? But yeah. Spanish is a Latin language. Yeah, but so, yeah. you know, so is French, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the Romance languages. Romance, yeah. The Spaniards regarded, anyway, they ate corn. The Taino ate corn, beans, peppers, arrowroot, peanuts, pineapples, guava, and papaya. Mm. Right? It sounds very good. It's a nice diet. They grew cotton, and their staple crop was manioc, which was a kind of sweet potato, also known as cassava or yucca. Ooh, yucca. 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 Yeah, it's good. It works for me. I never pronounce anything correctly. I eat it, though. Do you? Yeah. The manioc had to be processed because the roots contained cyanide. Does it sound familiar? Oh, uh, yeah. But this was a well-established <laughs> practice among the Taino. 
corn was actually not used as a staple the way it was by indigenous people in Central and North America, but rather was cooked into soup or stew. So they mostly relied on these sweet potatoes, the, the yucca. The islanders were skilled seafarers and traveled between islands, fishing and trading. Their largest canoes can hold as many as 150 people, and they could bring them as far as the South American mainland to trade. Worship centered around Zemi, Z-E-M-I. These are spirits or gods existing under a superior deity, a form of religion called henotheism. This was a new term by me. <laughs> and there are a variety of traditions, particularly in this region, that are henotheistic. So that's H-E-N-O. Yeah, here you go, yeah. James. Here's a word for you. Word of the day. H-E-N-O-theism. Henotheism. And that means you have multiple spirits or gods, but you have one central god on top of them all. We could describe voodoo or centuria in a very similar way, that there's a central deity at the pinnacle, and then a variety of deities underneath. Henotheism. Zemis could be male or female. They were often represented in icons and symbols and were invoked to assist with, for example, childbirth, rainfall, war, and disease. If not properly appeased, they could be vengeful. Behiks or behikes were shaman-like healers who played a significant role in rituals around the Zemi. After death, the individual continued on in a new form and could interact with the living, particularly at night. So this goes back to the dream world, right? Yeah. The Tainos told the difference between living and dead because the spirit had no navel. The spirit doesn't have a belly button. Nope. Is that really what they were covering up? No. Okay. It's definitely their vaginas. Right. Yeah, that's what I assume. <laughs> but now <laughs> I forgot about this detail when I said that, which now makes it seem like there's a logical reason to cover up your belly button <laughs> so nobody knows if you're alive or dead. <laughs> so the spirits come with their bits out, but they cover their belly button. They don't want you to know that they got nothing there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The Arieto was one of their more intense rituals. The Shachik beat a drum, the chief, and a procession of women came out dancing and gagging themselves before formally entering the ritual arena. They danced in honor of the Zemi located in the central council house, gave thanks, and made offerings. You asked about the ball game. Their ball game was played by both men and women. They knocked around a ball made of grass and roots, which were joined together with gum that they could not touch with their hands and feet, and so moved about with their hips, backs, shoulders, and elbows. Very cool. Yeah, so much harder than, you know, European football. Or, right. You have to be like a master baseball. yogi just to participate. <laughs> yeah, you can only use your hips, back, shoulders, and elbows. My goodness. All right, so that's a, a good note to end on with our picture of the Tainos. That's what the Tainos were like before Columbus got there. Running around, doing their thing, gender equality, Dancing. playing super hard ball game, sports ball. Gagging themselves. <laughs> Dancing, yeah. Yeah, I've, you know, eating them, sweet potatoes. Generally peaceful, fun time. Part two, Christopher Columbus. Oh, no. Moving to the colonizers. The first thing we need to keep in our mind about Columbus is the identity of his patrons. You could tell a lot by your patrons. I'm proud of my patrons. I think they say good things about me. Let's see what Columbus's patrons <laughs> say about him. 
The Spaniards arrived under the direction of Columbus, whose vision of a route across the Atlantic to India inspired the Spanish crown, namely King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, to support the expedition. The reason Ferdinand and Isabella are spoken of as co-monarchs, think about that. We always talk about Ferdinand and Isabella funding Columbus, but we don't talk about, I don't know, the reign of Elizabeth and Philip. Yeah, I guess just... Or Henry VIII and fill in the blank. And, 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 <laughs> and one of the seven. Catherine of Aragon. Uh, you know, let me think of other big monarchs that we talk about. We don't talk about Catherine the Great and whoever the hell her husband was. Peter the We don't talk third. about Peter the Great and his <laughs> wife. We just talk about the one monarch. Right. But with Ferdinand and Isabella, we always talk about them together. Yes. Have you ever... I, I mean, I, I, I've never reflected on it, but it is odd. So here's the reason. They ruled as co-monarchs because their marriage partially united a divided Spain. Mm. Isabella was from Castile and Ferdinand from Aragon. Isabella was actually Columbus's direct patron, such that the spoils of his adventures went to the kingdom of Castile and not Aragon. So they kind of brought together Castile and Aragon, but Castile and Aragon, neither of them wanted to be uh, bottom, you know, of the other. They both wanted equal representation. So that's why we never regarded, you know, Ferdinand as the king and Isabella as his consort. They were equal and, you know, or viewed equally. And in in the case of Columbus, it's Castile and Isabella who are primarily standing to gain from what he's up to. Isabella and Ferdinand were second cousins, and this required a papal dispensation to allow their marriage, which happened a week after they met. The Pope was actually opposed to the expansion of Aragon's power, and so they created a false papal bull to permit their union. Isn't that weird? A false papal bull? Yeah, what does a, bull refer to in this scenario? It's like a mechanical thing that you ride. They both had to ride it. It was part of ancient Catholic tradition. Really? Yeah, this was a false one because it's mechanical. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's not a mechanical bull, James, uh, but I appreciated the opportunity to to claim that uh, as a piece of paper. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But a legal document. Uh, But in this case, the Pope wouldn't give them one, so they just forged one. Oh, I see, I see. So they really weren't legally married from a Pope standpoint, which is an important standpoint. Because the church was powerful back then. Yes. And he has a very tall hat. Ferdinand and Isabella were some of the most militant Christians in Europe at the time of Columbus's voyage. In an effort to unify the peninsula, they instituted a militant Catholicism spearheaded by the Spanish Inquisition to convert the kingdoms of Iberia to Christianity, most pointedly the Jews and Muslims who, regarded, uh, who, who resided there. When the Jews rebelled, they had them all expelled from the country. So uh, Spain as James knows as a geography student, had been occupied by the Muslims for a period of its history. Um, And and there was a large Jewish population in in Spain as well. It was a fairly uh, multicultural, uh, multi-religious country until Ferdinand and Isabella. They are largely responsible for unifying. I I don't want to use a positive word here because it was all quite toxic, but inquisiting spain yes the spanish inquisition can largely be laid at their feet they initiated this thing that would go on to last like 400 years um and i think it's important to bear that in mind when we're talking about columbus isabella you know with her passion for this these sorts of projects 
is certainly interested when it turns out that there are these people over here in the Western world in Christianizing them. That's going to become part of the motivation for what Columbus is up to because she's trying to Christianize all of Spain. Yeah. After the country formally united, Columbus's discoveries would lead Spain to become the largest empire in the world, by the way, until 1810. Until the British. Basically, yeah. yeah. Then after 1810, yeah, the British, you know, they're in India, they're all over the place. And, you know, the U.S., um, well, they were in the U.S., we kicked them out. Canada. Yeah. <laughs> the Bahamas. Africa. Pakistan. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Spain was the big colonial power. I, I never really knew that either. I don't reflect on these things much. Yeah. Spanish is spoken a lot of places over the, across the world. Uh, yeah, and when you think about the Americas, so much of South America, right? Yeah. And so much Central America, Mexico, the Caribbean. I mean, this is a huge piece of, of the earth. Absolutely. In the Western Atlantic, Columbus followed a flock of seabirds toward land and first spotted the Bahamas, which he called San Salvador. The natives he called Guanahani. They encountered people on the 11th of October, and Columbus fantasized about turning the naked natives into Christian servants. So uh, just let me riff on nakedness a little bit more here. It's interesting. (laughs) Please do, Rob. (laughs) Um, Nakedness was also a way that, you know, the colonizers differentiated themselves from the natives um, because there was this impression that the native skin was somehow different because it could withstand the elements in ways Europeans skin or the way they understood their skin. They could not. Certainly Irish people have a hard time with certain elements. <laughs> James gets too warm. Yeah. I, I just sweat. <laughs> yeah, very pale people, I guess is what I'm trying to say, have trouble with the sun. Um, so Europeans thought that there, you know, whereas it was skin tone that marked off the African from the, uh, European, and that's how the European othered Africans. With the native people, it wasn't so much their skin tone, which was not as dark as the Africans. It was the fact that their skin could be out in the elements, that they could be naked. That's what made them other or different from the European. Um, And that allowed them to sort of maintain their attractiveness in the eyes of the European, in a way. But but white people can be naked too. We can. Yeah, and they just didn't know that back we, then. We often are. They just didn't realize. They just didn't know that they could take their pants yeah. off and survive. <laughs> <laughs> that would have that would have blown their minds. It was unprecedented. <laughs> they go as naked as when their mothers bore them, and so do the women. Although I did not see more than one young girl. All I saw were youths, none more than thirty years of age. They are very well made, with very handsome bodies and very good countenances. Their hair is short and coarse, almost like the hairs of a horse's tail. They wear the hairs brought down to the eyebrows, except a few locks behind, which they wear long and never cut. They paint themselves black, and they are the color of the canarians, neither black nor white. Some paint themselves white, others red, and others of what color they find. Some paint their faces, others the whole body, some only round the eyes, others only the nose. They neither carry nor know anything of arms, for I show them swords, and they took them by the blade and cut themselves through ignorance. They have no iron, their darts being wands without iron. Some of them have a fish's tooth at the end, and they are being pointed in all various of ways. 
They are all of fair stature and size, with good faces and well made. I saw some with marks of wounds on their bodies, and I made signs to ask what it was, and they gave me to understand that people from other adjacent islands came with the intentions of seizing them, and that they defended themselves. I believed, and still believe, that they come here from the mainland to take them prisoners. They should be good servants and intelligent, for I observed that they quickly took in what was said to them, and I believed that they would be easily made Christians, as it appeared to me that they had no religion. Ultimately, Columbus's desire to take advantage of them economically would outweigh his interest in converting them, although conversion, conversion was a natural justification for the colonization of their islands. If Columbus was saving their soul rather than just stealing their stuff and enslaving them, it gave his errand a more beneficent purpose. It's always going to sound better if you say, I'm going in to keep you from going to hell, rather than I'm going in to enslave and take all your stuff. Expand our religious empire. Right. <laughs> it doesn't sound very Christian. It sounds Christian to convert you. It does not sound Christian to steal your stuff and enslave you. That's Old Testament stuff. Oh, yeah. He continued on to northwestern Hispaniola, or present-day Haiti, where the Spanish built a fort. In 1492, on his first voyage, the Santa Maria shipwrecked, and Columbus ordered the vessel's lumber salvage to construct the fort, which he called La Navidad, since the shipwreck happened, can you guess? On Christmas? Yeah, it happened yeah. on Christmas Day. Nice. So everybody, you know, waited for Santa anxiously to fix their boat, and he, he just didn't know how. The elves don't yeah. have many boats. No, they just have sleds. Yeah, they, so he, <laughs> Santa just took the boat and made a bunch of sleds out yeah. of it. And they sunk right to the bottom of oh, the yeah. Caribbean Sea. So they dug them back up and built a fort. <laughs> <laughs> so, just over two weeks later, he left behind a small crew of Spanish soldiers to defend the fort, and he returned to Spain. But that was not the end of Columbus's time in the Caribbean. On his second voyage, in the last months of 1493, Columbus arrived with a crew who was sick and weary. Much of their food had spoiled on the journey, and they were instantly struck by dysentery from the microbes in the water they had no immunity to. But Columbus was obsessed with finding gold, and despite the need to establish some infrastructure in the site uh, he'd selected for their settlement, which was La Isabella, named after, of course, the queen, he wasted no time sending an expedition inland to Chibao. So... <laughs> Essentially what's happening is these people show up, they're all sick, They've, everybody's got dysentery, um, they need to clean the water, they need to create a situation where they can drink clean water, but they're not cleaning the water. I don't know that they even understand that that's a thing. Microbes haven't really been discovered yet, so they're just making themselves ill. I, I believe what they have to do is develop immunity to the microbes in the native water. And he's like, find me, go! <laughs> yes, yeah. Everybody, yeah, are, is vomiting in the bushes. <laughs> and they don't have any food. And he's like, I need... Where's the gold? Yeah, where's the gold? Crazy. <laughs> they reported back, this expedition, that there was gold aplenty to be found, and Columbus passed that on to his patron Isabella when 12 of his ships left on a return trip to Europe a few weeks later. Although he never hit on any truly large deposits... Columbus traded for and collected quite a bit of gold in the Caribbean islands, in large part because the natives had no use for it, except as jewelry. In fact, throughout history, and until very recently, gold has been a relatively useless metal. And so the Tainos must have been somewhat baffled by Columbus's obsession with it. 
This soft metal? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? <laughs> Dr. Chanka said, The Indians beat the gold into very thin plates in order to make masks of it and to be able to set it in bitumen. If it were not so prepared, it could not be mounted. Other ornaments they make of it to wear on the head and hang in the ears and nostrils. For these, also, they require it to be thin, since they set no store by it as wealth, but only for adornment. That is a bit, I mean, it's still cash for gold. It's still pretty useless, <laughs> except for microchips and stuff. La Isabella was a town the Taino had established but abandoned before the Europeans ever came. For several months, the Spanish and Taino coexisted and traded between themselves, but in April 1494, hostilities between the groups broke out into an open conflict. Through 1494 and 1495, there were attacks and counterattacks, and the Spanish undertook large-scale raids that resulted in the first mass enslavement of American Indians by Europeans. The first but most definitely not the last. Columbus established an inland fort, Santo Tomas, to begin scouting for gold, because that's all he wants to do. <laughs> you can't eat it, Columbus. <laughs> yeah, right. And placed a small garrison. He's like King Midas, right? But <laughs> placed a small garrison there under the command of Pedro de Marguerite. While Columbus was away on an expedition to Cuba, he had instructed Marguerite to explore the island and trade with the Indians for food, by the way. Because <laughs> we're not going to try to make it, grow it, find it ourselves. We're not going to fish because we need to find gold. That needs to be your job. 23-7. Yeah. That last hour, you find Indian people and ask them for food. <laughs> but instead of exploring, Marguerite traveled to Vega Real and forced the Indians there to supply his men with food. Not trade. Not trade. Because yeah. he doesn't have time. He's looking for gold constantly. Right. He can't have a polite conversation about getting They, they don't food. care about the gold. He just puts up that gun <laughs> and says, gimme now. He abandoned his post in summer 1494 and sailed back to Spain, Marguerite, that is, uh, leaving 400 men to their own devices. So now they have no commander. No commander and a bunch of guns. Or... And they have gotten into the habit of pointing those guns at Taino people and demanding food. So these men terrorized the countryside. They stole the Indians' property and their wives. The Taino made up their minds to revenge themselves on these Spaniards, and relations naturally, very quickly deteriorated. They would strangle the Spaniards and offer them up as sacrifice to their gods. Believing the Guatigara Taino had attacked one of his forts, Columbus then led an expedition against them in 1495. He captured more than 1,500 Indians and brought them to La Isabella, where he sent 550 on to Spain. Half of those died en route and were thrown overboard unceremoniously. The other half were sold into slavery in Seville. Next came the capture of Caunabo. Caunabo. There you go. In 1492, despite Columbus's belief that local Tainos were friendly, Kaunabo had attacked the fort at La Navidad. Kaunabo was the chief who ruled over Maguana, where the fort was located, and became incensed at the way Columbus's men treated the Taino women. In retaliation, he destroyed the fort and killed the remaining Europeans. Dr. Chanka reported on the site of the fort during the second voyage. They found the building which they had inhabited, and which they had to some degree fortified with a palisade burnt and leveled to the ground. 
They also found some cloaks and clothing which they had brought to throw upon the house. They observed, too, that the Indians who were seen near the spot looked very shy and dared not approach, but, on the contrary, fled from them. During Columbus's second voyage and settlement of Hispaniola, Caonuabo planned an attack on the fort at Santo Tomas and held the fort under siege for a month. Columbus then sent 400 men after him. They captured Caonuabo and his brother. Columbus was reluctant to execute foreign chiefs without the consent of his monarch, so he sent them back to Spain. However, they died either on the voyage or during a hurricane in La Isabella because they were chained to ships that sank into the harbor. Terrifying way to die. Oh my goodness. Meanwhile, Columbus's critics had been gathering at the Spanish court. So Columbus's critics are not just sitting right here with you. They were also in Europe. It wasn't just the Taino people and some of Columbus's men out there. People at the Spanish court were starting to think, what's, what's this guy up to over here? Well, things seem a little insane. Yeah, well, he sent a bunch of people who witnessed his horrors back to Spain. Right. <laughs> yeah, including Europeans, yeah, right? Yeah, including Europeans. So, uh, they were annoyed at the way Columbus had worked them, these Europeans, that is, on the settlement at La Isabella, and they were intent on usurping his authority since their departure from the colony. In March 14—so, I want to stress, the Indian people, when they make it to Spain, nobody's listening to them. First of all, they there's language barriers. Second of all, they're just enslaving them, and, you know, they're done with them, the ones that survived the voyage. It's these white guys— who, instead of finding food, remember, <laughs> were being uh, yeah, forced to find gold, who are coming back and saying, this guy is nuts. You can't just let him run this place. Somebody's got to do something. In March 1496, just after discovering another deposit of gold at San Cristobal, Columbus set sail for Europe on the Nina, appointing his brother Bartolome as governor of the colony in his absence. The Nina, come on, that boat's made a couple of trips across the Atlantic. Go, Nina, go. Go, Nina. Bartolome would abandon the settlement of La Isabella in favor of establishing a new city near San Cristobal. The Indians near La Isabella, who had been abundant when Columbus first arrived, had either fled or died of epidemics brought by the Spanish by the time Columbus completed his second voyage. Everybody's just sick when these guys arrive. It's the Europeans who are not immune to the natural microbes of the water, and then, you know, the Europeans are bringing their diseases and making the native people sick. It's just germs everywhere. In 1496, writing from Spain, Columbus sent formal orders with the crown's consent to abandon La Isabella and establish the town of Santo Domingo. The crown also ordered that all chachiques and their subjects involved in attacks on the Spanish should be captured and enslaved. 300 were sent to Spain in September, but almost all of them died before arriving in Cadiz. Wild. He's, yeah, he's well, got to stop sending things across the Atlantic yeah, I, until we figure it out. Send something that's not going to die first. Right. See if it makes it there. <laughs> send some plants. Send some plants. Send <laughs> send uh maybe an, maybe an animal. Maybe you know, a, like a chipmunk. A chipmunk. <laughs> send a chipmunk. See if it makes it. See if the chi- do the chipmunks arrive. Then people. But I mean, even if they made it, James, these native folks, they're not going to like it when they get there. Uh, Europe's pretty nice, I hear. But not if you're a slave. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, so once you're on that boat, there's no good news for you. No. Uh, but it's just horrifying, the thought of dying on these boats. 
While Bartolome was away negotiating with the Chachiques to establish Santo Domingo, one of his lieutenants, Francisco Rodando, conspired to overthrow the authority of the Columbus brothers. So we got the two Columbuses, Bartolome and Christopher, running the show, uh, sending back all these, these poor people on these boats. And here comes this guy, Francisco Rodando, and he's like, ah, I've had enough of this nonsense. You guys are nuts. He gathered a force of about 70 and forced Columbus's loyal commander, Diego Colon, into Casa Fuerte, Columbus's house, with his small force of men. They slaughtered the cattle, stole the horses, and took to the countryside where Rodondo recruited more Spaniards, promising them women and pleasure instead of the hardships they'd faced so far under the Columbus brothers. Uh, they slaughtered the cattle, stole the horses, and took to the countryside where Rodondo recruited more Spaniards, promising them women and pleasure instead of the hardship they, hardships they'd faced so far. He also garnered Taino allies to his cause. When Columbus was due to arrive on his third voyage, the rebels retreated to La Zaragua, where they could live out the life that Rodondo had envisioned, largely at the expense of the Taino. So they went to live off the Taino, these rebels as Columbus is rolling into town for the third time. Yeah. The crown gave Francisco de Bobadilla complete control as governor in the Americas, because they've been hearing all this crazy Columbus stuff. So, like, you run things, Bobadilla. Bobadilla was concerned with the speed and frequency which with, with which Columbus was executing Spaniards who opposed his rule. All right, this is also happening. Yes. Because these people are having a horrible time, naturally, like, James is going to reach a point as he's just, like, hanging out, starving, crapping himself. <laughs> Columbus is like, get me more gold. James, you're going to say what, eventually? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. And he's like, then you can get off my island. <laughs> this is my island. Go back to Spain. And then James looks down and realizes he's holding a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just want to. I just want to lay down for today. <laughs> so Columbus says, I can't have this guy holding a gun, and cuts off James's head. Oh. So, Bobadilla had Columbus arrested and returned to Spain for his crimes against the Europeans. Among the charges against Admiral Columbus, Bobadilla heard testimony that Columbus had refused to allow priests to baptize Tainos until he had determined which would be most suitable for slavery, slavery on the premise that baptized Tainos could not be slaves to fellow Christians. Just let that sink in for a second. So he's going to look at you. He's going to line up the Taino. And he's going to say, I like this one, this one, this one, and this one. They're not going to be Christians. We're going to leave them to go to hell. These other guys, they can be Christian because we don't have any use for them. So let's enslave the hell people. Jesus. Yeah. It's like a, I mean, spiritually, it's like a one-two punch there. Not only... In this life, you're going to be the slave, but in the next life, he's condemning you to eternal damnation in the eyes of a, of a Christian. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, was, he, was he really Christian? Or was he kind of like, oh, well, the if I'm going to get this money, then I need to appeal to the church? Or no. We, we can't peer really into the man's soul. Yeah, we don't really know. <laughs> but, you know. Based he, on his actions, it's in, a little... <laughs> in this moment, he is acting far more secular than Christian. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, other allegations include that he, number one, ordered a woman to be whipped naked on the back of a donkey for lying that she was pregnant. Number two, had a woman's tongue cut out for seeming to insult him and his brother. Number three, cut a Spaniard's throat for being homosexual. 
Number four, ordered Christians to be hung for stealing bread. Number five, ordered a cabin boy's hand cut off and posted publicly for using a trap to catch a fish. What? What? (laughs) Weird. Uh, Number six, uh, ordered for a man to have his nose and ears cut off as well as to be whipped, shackled, and banished. So just weird Weird punishments, brutal yeah. punishments. And there, he he's not only punishing these people, but he's punishing the people that have to carry out these punishments. I doubt he's doing this himself. Oh, yeah. He's making these other Horrible. people do terrible things yeah, to each other. Yeah, they're dismembering people. Yeah. Ugh. After he was jailed for six weeks, Fernando determined that Columbus should be freed and his possessions returned to him, but he should not be governor of the West Indies. Uh, and agreed to fund a fourth voyage. So Fernando did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Fernando says, uh, okay. That was all bad. You probably should not be in charge out here. Uh but go ahead, you can do this one more time. The fourth voyage was a strange one. Now <laughs> you may be thinking, James Weren't the others kind of strange? Yeah. But it's about to get weirder. This was strange even by Columbus standards. A coming hurricane forced Columbus and crew to seek harbor at Santo Domingo, but Columbus's enemies, Bobadilla and Rodondo, refused to believe him that a storm was imminent. They had been preparing to disembark for Spain. Among their armada was Aguja, uh, the Aguja containing Columbus's gold, which the crown had restored to him. A hurricane did materialize, as Columbus had predicted, and sunk all of the ships, drowning Bobadilla and the rebellious Roldando. Sunken gold. Sunken gold. You would think, James, except that the Aguja was the only ship to complete the journey to Spain. Oh. Yeah. Prompting claims, by the way, that Columbus had... Witchcraft. Oh. Yes. They claim that he had conjured the storm because if you think about that hurricane, he's Columbus is like a storm is coming, and they're like, no, it's not. That's ridiculous. And then they're out on the sea, and here it comes. And who dies? All of his enemies. And what doesn't go down? His gold. Yeah, that really is suspicious, that is Columbus. Suspicious, Columbus. So they said you conjured that storm. Another bit of quasi-magic took place in Jamaica, where Columbus was shipwrecked after an expedition to Central America, undertaken on a rumor of a large deposit of gold, gold. there. Yeah. <laughs> not food. No. Not love. Not gold. spices. Not spices. A storm off the coast of Cuba forced his ships to dock at St. Anne's Bay in Jamaica on the 25th of June, 1503, where they remained stranded for a year in part because the new colonial governor detested Columbus and refused to rescue him. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't make friends. (laughs) Yeah, he's just sitting there on the island. He's one of the luckiest people with no friends. There are people who could just canoe over, but the guy keeps saying, nope, leave him. Yeah, no, no, no. Let him think about what he's done. He's a witch. (laughs) Let the witch think about what he's done. (laughs) To prevent Jamaica's natives from attacking and killing him, Columbus made a show of predicting a lunar eclipse on the 24th of February, 1504, using the work of German astronomer Regiomontanus. 110 of Columbus's original 
147-person crew survived the series of ordeals, and all but 38 of those continued with him back to Spain. How so many people are dying except for Columbus? <laughs> How many a, times he's gone? Four times now, a, and he he don't die. I maintain the the possibility that he was a witch. And on that, we leave Columbus. Okay. <laughs> it's the fourth voyage. Yeah, what more yeah, can we say? Marriage, he's done. All he right. is richer, uh, but perhaps otherwise wor- worse off than when we found him at the beginning of this tale. A little bit of my take on this: Columbus was was brave. Yeah, he made it to um, um, America four, four times. times. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, treacherous voyage, and he just like goes off around the Caribbean, doesn't care. No, has no formal training in like setting up like <laughs> apparently <laughs> a colony yeah. yes. or <laughs> feeding, people, feeding people, basic yeah. infrastructure. Uh, but he's just doing it. This was uh, so so brave. Yes, we need to say brave. I think it is unfair to claim that this man was not uniquely brave. He was also profoundly greedy, which was a common trait among Renaissance explorers. His greed compromised his morality and led to the death and enslavement of thousands of Tainos. His ambition put him in constant conflict with his fellow Europeans as he fought to keep them working and building no matter how sick or starved. And this led to his being deposed as Spain's governor of the West Indies. But... For all these deep faults, we cannot deny that he was an intrepid explorer who took four voyages across the Atlantic. And those trips, by the way, did kill a lot of his men. Yeah, but not him. Not him. He also sought out new territory for his patrons on every single adventure. He never rested on his laurels. He seemed to have a genuine curiosity about the world, albeit a curiosity tinged by gold lust and near, near, I'm saying near, but possibly just sociopathic disregard for human suffering. So, was Columbus a villain? An amazing villain, capable of tremendous acts of will and survival and horrendous acts of cruelty. Don't build a trap for a fish or else you'll lose your hand. He also might have been a storm conjurer. I mean, I mean, isn't that whole area just a st- storm conjurer area down there? The, so you're saying Caribbean? that yeah. anyone who passes into the Caribbean becomes a storm conjurer? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> you know I mean? I guess that's, that's possible. If you go to Scotland, do you become a rain conjurer? That would be cool, but I've never been to Scotland, Rob. Oh, you should go. Have you been? I have, and I cannot conjure rain. I've been oh. many times, and I cannot conjure <laughs> rain. It's one of my favorite places. All right, James, bring us on home. We, the members of the Secret you got to adjourn this stuff, not yeah, start oh, yeah, all yeah, over. Yeah. I hereby adjourn this blessed episode of Call Confessions until we get together do it again it's a blessed episode oh it was blessed because we talked about colombo mm-hmm. and how evil and how just the horrors you know yeah i mean this is the first in a series of a few episodes where i want to focus on uh, non-white folks yeah in, in this case the taino and their their relations with columbus uh, we did all the whites the european stories already for the most part uh, going through uh, the baltic crusades and james we started uh, you, what, I did Constantine before, and then you came in and did what with me after Constantine? After Constantine was... The medieval stuff. Um, 
Yes. This is why but I'm who? Who? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. We've done the white people is what yeah, I'm trying yeah, to yeah, say. Yeah. We did white people. We did all them white people. Um, so now I do want to turn our attention uh, specifically to the Americas uh, and non-white uh, people who got caught up in this Christianization process. Because when we talk about Christianization, it certainly begins in Europe, and we can't have Christianization of the Americas until Europe has been well and truly Christianized, albeit, as I've said, with a heck of a lot of paganism mixed in. But now that we've we've moved over to the Americas, we're going to follow that uh, journey a little bit further next episode. I said we were going to do it last episode. I was wrong. <laughs> but next episode, we're going to do Salem, uh, specifically focusing on Tichuba. Uh, so again, accusations against non-white people, uh, non-Christian. Uh, and then after Salem, uh, we're going to go and do the pagan saints of Mexico. So looking at the pagan history there and its interaction with Christianity. Uh, so that's going to wrap up our series here. Uh, so um, I want to thank Luke Kinneman and Brandon Walls for doing voices for us. I also want to give Erin uh, King a shout out. We missed her name last episode, but she did do a voice for us on The Great Witch Hunt, The Judge. Uh, joining me here at the mic, I've got James Caplangis, Captain Odo Caplangis. Yes, it was a pleasure speaking to your ears. <laughs> As always, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant. We'll catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. Vincent Price would say to uh, Frank Sinatra or to Liberace. What would you? What would he say? He would say, save your sassy asides for your windowless bars. <laughs> Did that actually happen, or you just imagine that? <laughs>